Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 271. This episode is False Solutions versus Real Solutions. So let's read a little bit through the Biden climate plan and then go from there. So Joe Biden is our president-elect as I speak, and he has a climate plan. And I've been going through that climate plan and critiquing it, uh, sharing with you what I think are maybe false solutions and alternatively real solutions. So let's go through that. So it says here in Biden's climate plan that we're going to improve the energy efficiency of our buildings. Building on his efforts in the Recovery Act, Biden will set a target of reducing the carbon footprint of the U.S. building stock 50% by 2035, creating incentives for deep retrofits that combine appliance electrification, efficiency, and on-site clean power generation. He will work to identify barriers to help offset the upfront cost of building upgrades and put in place a national program to target a package of affordable energy efficiency retrofits in American homes. He will direct the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to make housing for low-income communities more efficient. He will direct the U.S. Department of Energy to redouble efforts to accelerate new efficiency standards for household appliances and equipment. And he will repair and accelerate the building code process and create a new funding mechanism for states and cities to adopt strict building codes and train builders and inspectors says here we're going to accelerate the development, the deployment of electric vehicles. There are now one million electric vehicles on the road in the United States, but a key barrier to further deployment of these greenhouse gas reducing vehicles is the lack of charging stations and coordination across all levels of government. As president, Biden will work with our nation's governors and mayors to support the deployment of more than 500,000 new public charging station public charging outlets by the end of 2050. In addition, Biden will restore the full electric vehicle tax credit to incentivize the purchase of these vehicles. He will ensure the tax credit is designed to targeted middle-class consumers and to the greatest extent possible to prioritize the purchase of vehicles made in America. And he will work to develop a new fuel economy standard that goes beyond what the Obama-Biden administration put in place. Says here, we're going to empower local communities to develop transportation solutions. Says communities across the country are experiencing a growing need for alternative and cleaner transportation options, including transit, dedicated bicycle and pedestrian thoroughfares, and first and last mile connections. The Biden administration will transform the way we fund local transportation, giving state and local governments with input from community stakeholders, more flexibility to use any new transportation funds to build safer, cleaner, and more accessible transportation ecosystem. 
It says here, we're going to partner with farmers and ranchers so that better agricultural practices and deployment of digesters generate new sources of revenues. It says, for our family, farmers, ranchers, and landowners, the climate agenda is not just about growing nutritious food and make it accessible to all families. It's also about having water they can rely on for growing that food. It's about local farms and fresh food for every community. It's about making sure that floodwaters in the Midwest are not taking away family farms that have fed our people for decades. Biden will review regulatory roadblocks to new innovations and invest in climate-friendly farming, such as conservation programs for cover crops and other practices aimed at restoring the soil and building soil carbon, and in the process, preventing runoff and helping family farmers deploy the latest technologies to maximize productivity. He will create new opportunities to support deployment of methane digesters to capture potent climate emissions and generate electricity. With these efforts, family farmers can benefit and help lead the clean energy revolution. So we've read through four sections here. The first one has to do with buildings and energy efficiency in buildings. The second one has to do with accelerating the deployment of electric vehicles. The third one has to do with empowering local communities to develop transportation solutions. And the fourth one has to do with partnering with farmers and ranchers so that, better, uh, so that we can have better agricultural practices. So I would assert that there are a number of problems with these supposed solutions. And I want to share with you the general, like what, what are the main themes that we see in the false solutions? So uh, false solutions as, you know, in the Biden climate plan include, uh, you know, a blind reliance on technology, too much technology, too much electronics technology. We need to get away from this blind worship of technology. I mean, I you know, have an iPhone and a laptop and all that stuff, but um, we need to look at the impact of electronics technology. We need to look at the slave labor that is required uh, to get the ingredients for our electronics technology. You know, if, if environmentalists are not against slave labor and in favor of fair labor practices, then what good are we? I'm of the opinion that we're not going to solve the climate crisis if we are cruel to other human beings, and we're not going to solve the climate crisis if we are completely indifferent to the ecological impact of our mining methods and our agricultural methods and our manufacturing methods. So let's get on board with, you know, high priority, top priority is first of all, do no harm. When it comes to mining, when it comes to manufacturing, do no harm. So the areas of the Biden climate plan that are problematic include blind reliance on technology. It includes inherently problematic technologies such as a smart grid or liquid fuels. A smart grid is problematic because of the surveillance issues. You know, we need to solve our surveillance problems before we dig deeper 
dig ourselves deeper into surveillance problems. We don't want to have a situation where the government or big tech monopolies can know what we're doing every minute because of a smart thermostat or a smart refrigerator or uh, that kind of thing. When it comes to liquid fuels, I'm scared of liquid fuels, you know, advanced liquid biofuels. <laughs> I mean, you know, that, that, mean, that means, uh, you know, ethanol. That means ethanol from sugar. That means ethanol from corn. These are extremely problematic in terms of their carbon footprint alone, let alone the ecological impact of, uh, of the farming methods that are used to grow the corn that's converted to ethanol. So, and so number one problem is blind reliance on technology. Number two problem is inherently problematic technologies such as a smart grid or liquid fuels. Number three is speculative solutions such as carbon capture. You know, capturing carbon out of the atmosphere is inherently problematic and speculative. If we were serious about capturing carbon out of the atmosphere, then we would call for an immediate end to deforestation. Because when forests grow, they absorb carbon out of the atmosphere. And when grasslands grow, they absorb carbon out of the atmosphere. So the Biden climate plan says little or nothing about capturing carbon through natural methods. It only has to do with capturing carbon through technological methods, many of which have not even been developed yet. And to the extent they do exist, they're not feasible. And then, you know, capturing carbon out of the atmosphere, carbon is only one problem that we have. Carbon is only one problem that's been delivered to us by industrial civilization. The other problems include you know, water pollution, air pollution. If you're capturing carbon out of a plant, a natural gas plant, let's say you're generating electricity by burning natural gas, then that natural gas probably came from fracking. Fracking causes water pollution. Fracking causes terrible air pollution in the vicinity of where, of where the fracking operation is. So capturing carbon is a false solution. If, it, if, it's just, if you're just capturing carbon and you're not addressing any of the other problems that, that go along with the life cycle of that, you know, that manufacturing method or that energy generation method. So other speculative solutions include geoengineering, like having a, a shield out in space that blocks the sun. It's like, oh, we've got global warming. That's caused by the sun shining on the earth. Let's block some of the sun by sending uh, you know, a, a space shield that's many miles wide to partially block the sun. And, you know, it's, it's speculative. We don't know the, you know, we know somebody's going to make money off of it, but we don't know uh, if it's going to solve the problem, or if it does solve the problem, it, it, you know, what are the side effects going to be? What are going to be, be the effects on agriculture? What are going to be the effects on climate? What are going to be the effects on hurricanes and other uh, natural phenomena? The fourth type of problem that emerges from Biden's climate plan is subsidies for questionable programs. Like, you know, anytime you subsidize big agricultural crops, then, then that's questionable because, you know, 
So subsidizing corn for ethanol is highly questionable. Subsidizing electric vehicles is highly questionable, if you ask me, because electric vehicles are jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. We've got all these problems caused by too many internal combustion engine cars that we each get in and drive individually, and it's just more of the same. Electric vehicles are more of the same. Uh, the way, you know, I'm not saying electric vehicles don't have a place, but they're not a panacea and they cause a lot of pollution in and of themselves. And if we're subsidizing electric vehicles, but we don't have a serious proposal for changing our transportation system so that we seriously utilize surface mass transit, such as buses and trains, then we're simply not serious about solving the climate change, or any of the other types of environmental pollution that we've got going on. Another type of problem that's inherent in the Biden climate plan is a confusion of priorities. What are the high priorities and what are the medium to low priorities? You know, to me, uh, electric vehicles are a medium to low priority. Solar energy, generating solar energy is a medium to low priority. High priority is to frickin' end deforestation right now. Another high priority is to take, you know, half the economy and say, do we really need this? You know, why are we, why do, why do we have all this so-called defense? So let's reduce the following by 90%. Let's reduce defense by 90% because it doesn't defend us and it causes lots of carbon pollution. You know, three-fourths of the carbon pollution caused by the federal government comes from defense and it doesn't defend us. It's just, you know, defense is unspeakably cruel. What we've done in Vietnam and Iraq and Syria is unspeakably cruel. Why are we doing this? We need to reduce defense by 90%. Reduce defense by 90%. Reduce defense by 90%. We also need to reduce air travel by 90%, if we, which wouldn't be hard if you get rid of uh, defense-related air travel, get rid of air travel that's you know, done by corporations that, that shouldn't exist, or if they do exist, should exist in a, in a radically different form. I mean, there's no reason for worldwide food corporations to be in every locality, sucking the vitality out of our local economies, polluting water and air and soil worldwide. So reduce fast food by 90%. And if you reduce, you know, so-called the fast food retail chain, nothing wrong with preparing things that can be eaten fast, but that can be done by local businesses and, uh, and these big retail chains are just bad news environmentally and otherwise. So we can reduce air travel by 90% if we get rid of the defense-related air travel and we get rid of the air travel associated with aggrandizing these multinational chains, multinational big box hardware stores, multinational big box electronic stores. Uh, I'm not saying there's not a place for such things. I'm saying if we looked at the costs, the benefits, and the alternatives, we would be going in an entirely different direction. The Biden climate plan contemplates none of that, almost you know, none of that. Biden climate plan, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, none of these people are gonna stand up to corporate power, and Biden included, and that's why his climate plan is just not going to be 
effective if he's not willing to stand up to corporate power and if we're not willing to look at the costs, the benefits, and the alternatives of all these different industries that we've got going on and all these different sectors that we've got going on. There are a number of industries that can and should be reduced by 90%, and there are a number of sectors of our economy that are grossly mismanaged and need to be completely restructured. Defense is a sector that is grossly mismanaged and needs to be entirely restructured, mainly to take power away from the plutocrats that are not interested in you and me. They're not interested in our future. They might be very nice people, but they're in a structure and a system where they just can't help themselves. They have to aggrandize their wealth and other people's wealth, and they have to keep going these industries that are just chewing up the planet and spitting it out. So the, the Biden climate plan is rife with a confusion of priorities. We've got low to medium priorities that are given high priority in the Biden climate plan, and we've got high priorities that are utterly neglected in the Biden climate plan. So I read four sections of the Biden climate plan. The first one had to do with improving the energy efficiency of our buildings. And, you know, this is very important. The, the, the experts and the engineers that I have read and listened to say that the really low-hanging fruit when it comes to reducing fossil fuels has to do with, uh, it, the, with the energy efficiency of buildings. So the energy efficiency of buildings is a really good idea but making buildings more energy efficient is not going to do much good if we're continuing to build more and more and more buildings just indiscriminately. It's the free market free-for-all. It's like, why do we do this? Well, because somebody's going to make a profit from it. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the, you know, so if you, if you take a forest and, and remove the forest, then you know the forest on a balance sheet the forest is not worth anything there it's worth a lot to our ecological health but it's not worth anything economically until you chew it up sell the timber and put cattle on it or put crops on it so as long as we've got a free market free-for-all going on as long as we're building new buildings indiscriminately then then it won't matter if we're do if we have more energy efficiency. It's like when before you climb a ladder, look at the wall that it's leaning up against. Don't climb the ladder of success only to get to the top and figure out it's leaning up against the wrong wall. You know, before we start down a path, we need to ask where is this path leading? And it doesn't. It's not about perfectionism. It's not knowing exactly where we're going before we take even one step. It is about asking. You know, what are the, what are the costs of going down this pathway? If we're developing new technologies, what are the costs of uh, not just the technology itself? What what are the costs of the materials that go into that technology? What are the costs of the materials that go into these buildings? What are the costs of removing, you know, taking a, a la taking land that was a field and turning it into a building of some sort? What does that building do? What's the purpose of that building? Is that building, you know, if, if it's related to the Department of Defense or if it, then it's, then I would say, can we talk about whether we even need that building? 
if it's related to multinational fast food corporations? Can we talk about whether we even need that? If this building is related to a highly destructive form of agriculture, can we talk about whether we really need that? I mean, you know, you can take the uh, you, you can take these concentrated animal feeding operations and put solar panels on top and act like you're doing a good thing, but the activity associated with concentrated animal feeding operations is inherently destructive, inherently cruel, etc. So before we start down a path, let's ask ourselves where that path is leading. Most of the paths that are outlined in the Biden climate plan have to do with, you know, taking stuff that's not good and putting it on steroids, taking technology that's not good and putting it on steroids, taking agricultural practices that are not good and putting it on steroids, taking land use practices that are not good and, and, and putting it on steroids. So yes, let's work to make buildings more efficient, but let's say, you know, let's say no new buildings. Stop, with notable exceptions. I mean, this may sound crazy, but Hart's climate plan has to do with, you know, eliminating half of the economic activity that we see around us. So yeah, it's radical, but what are our alternatives? What are the costs, you know, what are the costs of the system that we have? Let's not talk about what is the cost of change until we talk about what is the cost of the system that we already have. So the next section in Biden's climate plan, the, to, out of the four that we're talking about, accelerating the deployment of electric vehicles. So electric vehicles are one of those things that in my view are a low to medium priority. They have their place, but if we put electric vehicles on steroids and we don't make any of the other fundamental changes that need to be made, then we're going in the wrong direction with this. For one thing, the electronics technology and the battery technology that goes into electric vehicles causes a lot of water pollution and currently is mined and extracted with a lot of slave labor. Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, produces half of the world's uh, coltan, actually half of the world's cobalt. So, and, and there's a whole lot of slave labor that happens in Democratic Republic of Congo. Democratic Republic of Congo is one of the poorest countries in the world above ground and one of the richest countries in the world below ground. In other words, Democratic Republic of Congo has a whole lot of valuable resources under the ground, making it one of the richest countries in the world. So why are the people so poor? That's what we're talking about when we say it's the, one of the poorest countries in the world above ground. The people of a Democratic Republic of Congo are very, very poor. Many of them, possibly as 40,000 or more, conservatively speaking, are working as slaves. Many of the slaves are children. Such is the cost of electric vehicles and the lithium-ion batteries. So instead of, hey, let's do more and more and more, more and more and more electric vehicles, I say let's eliminate half the economy. Because if we really look around us, uh, then if we really look around us and look at the costs and the benefits and the alternatives of all these different industries, we'll find that, you know, what, what price are we paying for all this stuff? Most of what we see is there because it makes somebody a profit. Uh, most of what we see is not there because it's helpful to 
people. So instead of taking electric cars and putting them on steroids, I say let's reduce the, uh, new, the manufacture of new cars by 90%. We spend $8,000 per car per year on our cars, and it didn't have to be that way. If you go back to the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, and, you know, how did we get this transportation system in which everybody has to have a car? Well, it was planned by General Motors and implemented by the federal government. Even Congress gave up control of the transportation system. And we started spending 100 to 1 on automobile-related transportation as opposed to trains and buses. So if we're really serious about solving the climate problem and other forms of environmental pollution, then we will reverse that 100 to 1 ratio. We will start spending 100 to 1 on surface mass transit and stop widening highways. You know, most federal highway funds go to widening of interstate highways. Why are we doing this? Why are we widening highways? So a, a climate plan that has to do with uh, subsidizing electric cars but says nothing about stopping the manufacture of all these new cars, you know, most of the pollution associated with a car is not during the lifetime of the car. It has nothing to do with what does or doesn't come out of the tailpipe. So uh, an electric car doesn't have a tailpipe. An internal combustion car does have a tailpipe but nearly all, you know, two-thirds of the pollution associated with a car has nothing to do with what comes out of a tailpipe. Sixty percent of the pollution associated with a car has to do with manufacturing, according to Richard Smith, an economist who I, you know, really think he has one of the best presentations I've seen. Email me at info at theclimatereport.net if you want me to send you that link. So when we continue to widen the highways, we not only depend on highways for transportation, for you know, transporting people, but also for transporting cargo. So that's a subsidy to Amazon. It's a subsidy to UPS. It's a subsidy to Federal Express. It's a subsidy to Walmart and Home Depot and Office Depot and all the fast food companies. Why are we subsidizing the, some of the worst companies in the world? And by worst companies, I'm, I mean, you know, all this carbon pollution, all this manufacturing uh, that, that is, is required. So how about we work to get our lives back instead of, you know, giving our entire economy and all the subsidies and all the per permission to pollute, giving all that to these huge companies. And you don't benefit from any of that unless you happen to be one of a, you know, a small percentage of people that happen to own stock in these companies. So I've got about a minute left. Let me leave you with something to think about. So we've been talking about false solutions versus real solutions. You know, we need to be on the lookout for false solutions because, you know, Wall Street wants to sell us something. Currently, Wall Street dominates about two-thirds of the economy at the expense of local businesses, at the expense of consumers, at the expense of the climate at the expense of all the, uh, the people who have to drink the water and breathe the air where these companies do their manufacturing and put out toxic chemicals. So how about we take the world back? How about we refuse to allow Wall Street and the corporatocracy to rule everything? How about we look around us and start using our heads and making observations and saying, is this really what we want? How about we look around us and say, do we want to be ruled by a democracy 
or do we want to be ruled by a plutocracy? Because right now we're ruled by a plutocracy. I'm not saying we have no democracy at all, but plutocracy is the rule of money. Democracy is the rule of people. Much of what the people want gets thwarted in a system where money is in the driver's seat. So how about we stop that? How about we do it differently? How about we stop listening to the New York Times and MSNBC and the Washington Post because they're not telling us the whole story? How about we stop listening to the Democratic Party and the Republican Party because they're not telling us the whole story? That's all we have time for. Thank you for joining me. If you'd like uh, further information or point you to valuable resources, then please uh, email me at info at theclimatereport.net. Have a great day. Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 272. Today's topic is regenerative agriculture. So last, the last episode was uh, false solutions and real solutions. We've been reading through Biden's climate plan, and we, the idea with false solutions and real solutions is that we need to distinguish between false solutions and real solutions. I've always said on the Climate Report that one of our main jobs is to separate rhetoric from reality. So let's look at the rhetoric of Biden's climate plan and dig into it a little bit and say, you know, what is really the underlying reality of all this? The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has given us 10 years to seriously reduce our carbon emissions. You know, we've had 30 years since James Hansen, the NASA scientist, sat before Congress and said, you know, Houston, we have a problem. We have a serious problem with global warming, with the greenhouse effect, and we need to do something about it. You know, if we had started then to reduce our emissions by 2% per year, then we'd be in good shape right now. But we didn't do that, did we? And it's not your fault or mine. I contend that it's the fault of the plutocracy. It's the people at the very top who make all the decisions. It's, the fault, it's not the fault of human nature. It's not even the fault of our culture, unless you want to dig into what's the cause of our culture with all this you know, wasteful consumption, etc. So it's been a very long time since we've known this, that this is a problem. We have not made any significant progress at all. Every year, almost, we increase our carbon emissions. The only times we've decreased our carbon emissions have been in economic downturns, like there was an economic downturn in 2008-2009. There was a slight dip in carbon emissions at that time. We will probably see a dip in carbon emissions as a result of COVID. But we will not be doing what we need to do until and unless we seriously restructure the economy and our political system. The only solutions are relatively radical solutions. 
and we shouldn't be uh, afraid of radical because we've got radical going on right now. The amount of defense, so-called defense that we have is radical. The, amount, the, the way our economic system always changes is radical. The way we're concentrating power into the hands of a very few is radical. The way we allow technology to change our lives before we know what's going on or what's the cost or what the benefits or what are the alternatives, all that is radical. The world is changing radically. The question is whether you and I have any control over that change. So the last time we talked about false solutions that are inherent within the Biden climate plan, and those come under about six or seven different categories. One of, one of uh, you know, some of these so-called solutions depend on blind reliance on technology. We need to not rely blindly on technology because for one thing, technology has a big uh, ecological impact. Electronics technology has a big ecological impact. We could continue to enjoy the technology that we have if we would make the plutocracy go on a diet, because the plutocracy wants to have these worldwide corporations that, 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 that help them reap a profit from the technology at our expense. It need not be that way. So other false solutions related to Biden's climate plan include, well, blind reliance on technology, inherently problematic technologies, such as a smart grid or liquid fuels, speculative solutions such as carbon capture or geoengineering, subsidies for questionable programs such as huge crops to grow ethanol or electric vehicles or generally technology. Subsidies for technologies, and we have to look, is technology always the solution? Maybe, sometimes technology is the problem. For example, when Apple sells you an iPhone, it's out of their hands. How you discard it is not their problem. There should be at least a $100 deposit for an iPhone so that, it, you, know, so that you can take your iPhone, return it to Apple, and then they have to pay you that $100 deposit so that they're in a position to reuse the materials. If we did that, there would be a serious reduction in the need to mine new materials like gold and um, lithium and cobalt. Instead, these things go into a landfill and get into the water supply. It's a bad situation. It need not be that way. But that's an example of problems caused by technology. Technology doesn't solve all of our problems. For one thing, we need to have control. For one thing, we need to be reimbursed because we as taxpayers have paid for this technology to be developed. We need to be reimbursed for that and we need to have control over how technology is used. We need to have control over what Facebook does and what Google does. Currently, we have no control over those technologies. We should. The users, as consumers, should have control over those technologies, and the, um, the taxpayer and the, the, you know, the, the democracy should have control over how technologies are used in our society because technology has a big impact and we can't let that be random. Another type of false solution has to do with confusion of priorities. We're taking low priorities and make them high priorities, and high priorities and make them low priorities. So high priorities include ending deforestation. High priorities include shifting to 
regenerative agriculture. High priorities include ending things that don't serve us, such as defense, which doesn't defend us, but only makes the world more dangerous, or ending you know, 90% of air travel, because if you look at it, 90% of air travel does nothing to make your life or mine better. We need to look at the costs, we need to look at the benefits, and we need to look at the alternatives to air travel. All this indiscriminate manufacture of new cars does nothing for the average person. All this indiscriminate manufacture of new airplanes, new tanks, new Navy ships does nothing for you and me. We need to look at the costs, the benefits, and the alternatives. For example, you know, people have jobs making tanks, people have jobs making planes, people have jobs making cars, but what are the costs of that and what are the alternatives? What, how else could we use our time in such a way that turns out to be economically valuable? And another major theme running through what I consider to be false solutions in Biden's climate plan is trickle-down. So he talks about, you know, we're, we're going to create whole new industries and we're going to, you know, capture American innovation, all this stuff. But what he's talking about is trickle-down. There's some lip service to strong union jobs, but basically it's like, you know, get in there, mix it up, work hard, you know, as if Americans aren't working hard enough. And we need to have an unparalleled amount of ambition. Well, that's, that's crap. It's not about ambition. It's not about doing more. It's about doing less. It's about, hey, let's get our life back. Let's get our time back. Hey, let's enjoy something that, is, that really means freedom. Let's get real freedom instead of just getting lip service to freedom. Another major limitation, another uh, <clears throat> problem with the false solutions in Biden's climate plan has to do with token limitations on activities that need to be shut down entirely or at least reduced by 90%. So fuel efficiency standards are good, but that's a token limitation on a sector that needs to be completely revolutionized. As long as we're spending 100 to 1 in favor of cars versus trains, then we're not serious about revolutionizing our transportation sector. We're not serious about decarbonizing our transportation sector if we've got all the, if we're churning out new cars, new cars, new cars, and if we're spending on automobile transportation at a ratio of 100 to 1 vis-a-vis -vis trains and buses. And by the way, if we could do that, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. We spend $8,000 per year per car on automobiles. You know, it's a racket. The amount we spend on automobiles to own and operate an automobile, it, it's a lot of money, and it doesn't have to be that way, and it's not something that we have because of democracy. It's not something we have because of a free market. It's something that was imposed upon us in the 50s when big business, big automobile makers, big oil uh, in, you know, prevailed upon big government to say, here's how we're going to do transportation. We're going to do lots and lots of cars. And we, we weren't given a choice. Even Congress relinquished control over transportation. So the Biden climate plan 
has no doubt good intentions, but you know what they say about good intentions, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We don't need good intentions, we need results, we need revolutionary changes in our economy, we need revolutionary changes in our politics, we need to give control of our government and our economy to the people instead of having it controlled by a very few plutocrats and technocrats. All of which is to say, let's get at real solutions and stop uh, doing false solutions. So real solutions include end deforestation. Just stop deforestation. We've got all this deforestation occurring on public lands, and that could end with the stroke of a pen. End deforestation now. Deforestation for the purposes of mining, deforestation for the purposes of agriculture, deforestation for the purposes of building lots and lots and lots of new buildings. It needs to end now. If we're, if we're serious about climate change, if we just want to pat ourselves on the back and make it seem like we're doing something good, then continue to all the false solutions. But real solutions include ending deforestation now. It's one of the many examples where it's not about doing more, it's about doing less. Another one of the real solutions that has to do with doing less, not more, is to end the manufacture, uh, you know, reduce defense by 90%, reduce defense by 90%, reduce air travel by 90%, reduce air travel by 90%, reduce the manufacture of new cars by 90%, reduce new cars by 90%. Reduce the manufacture of new planes by 90%. Reduce new planes by 90%. Reduce the manufacture of tanks and navy ships and uh, personnel carriers associated with the military by 90%. Reduce new fossil fuel infrastructure by 90%. A lot of it has to do with doing less, not more, and we could do less not more if we had universal basic income and Medicare for all. But that's another conversation. But one of the real solutions, so we're talking about, we're wanting to make the distinction between false solutions and real solutions. One of the real solutions is regenerative agriculture. So let's look at regenerative agriculture. And I want to draw your attention to a great book that I just found, and it's called Eating Tomorrow, Agribusiness, Family Farmers, and the Battle for the Future of Food by Timothy A. Wise with a foreword by Raj Patel. Raj Patel is my man. Uh, so if you want to check out more by Raj Patel, two excellent books. Stuffed and Starved is one of them, and the History of the World in Seven Cheap Things is another book by Raj Patel. He's an absolute master of the English language. If you don't want to read his books, look him up on YouTube. He's a pleasure to listen to and learn from. So let's read bits and pieces from the book called Eating Tomorrow, Agribusiness, Family Farmers, and the Battle for the Future of Food by Timothy A. Wise. So he says, the world loses 25 million acres of cropland each year as some 80% of agricultural land suffers from moderate to severe erosion. So this is industrialized agriculture, lots and lots of erosion, lots and lots of tillage, lots and lots of that, you know, that soil, that good soil ends up in our waterways.
The waterways don't need the soil. The farmland does need the soil. There's lots and lots of, there's, there's lots of ways to prevent the erosion, but that's when you have to get into regenerative farming. So regenerative farming, what I mean by that is farms that tend to be small. They tend to be biologically diverse. You have multiple crops, not just one crop. You tend to have plants and animals, not just crops or livestock. But you have both, you know, lots of small crops, a diversity of small crops. This gives a diversity of income to the small farmer and it gives a, a diversity of biological diversity. The way it is now, farmland is at war with nature because nature is complex and diverse. And a farm, uh, you know, ag industrialized agriculture is simple. You have soybeans as far as the eye can see or corn as far as the eye can see, or you have a huge concentrated animal feeding operation that's only pigs or whatever it may be. So it, it's simple. It, you know, by its very nature, industrialized agriculture removes the biological diversity that we need in our world. And, you know, you have this crop, you have to protect it from insects, so-called pests. So you spray pesticides and these are neurotoxins and the carcinogens and you want to kill the weeds. But when you kill the weeds, you're killing off the biological diversity. You want to kill the insects, but when you kill the insects, you're killing off the biological diversity. It may be that only one insect eats your crop, but you have to, you have to kill the bees and the butterflies along with it because an insecticide that kills the, whatever it is that eats your crop is also going to kill the bees and the butterflies. Almost all insects are beneficial and we need to stop killing off all the insects. Item number two from Eating Tomorrow by Timothy A. Wise, it says, overuse of synthetic fertilizer on monocropped agricultural lands is causing acidification, reducing organic matter and soil microbial diversity. In other words, in nature, soils are living. And there's a whole bunch of farmers today that are wanting to grow their crops and their livestock on top of living soil. Whereas back in the late 40s and early 50s, we took the weapons of war and turned them into fertilizer manufacturers. And we took the, you know, we took the factories that were used as nerve gas and turned those factories into insecticide factories. And then we said, well, soil just needs three things, uh, phosphorus, potassium, and, uh, and nitrogen. And it's, it's, a, it's a mechanical process, but it's an oversimplification of how nature works. It's an oversimplification of how nature can produce food. And we need to set aside this mechanical approach to what produces food. And we need instead to go to an approach that embraces living soil. Because for one thing, living soil can, uh, it can, it can sequester carbon. So we have global warming because of carbon. 
we could be hiding that carbon in the soils. My man Doug Tallamy says that the soils of the world could uh, hold, seven hold seven times the amount of excess carbon that's in the atmosphere. That means all of our problem with global warming would go away if we would store our carbon in the soils instead of just, you know, what we do now releases carbon into the soils. We, so regenerative agriculture could store carbon in the soils, but what we have now is industrialized agriculture, which releases carbon from the soil into the air. Item number three, half or more of synthetic fertilizers is not taken up by crops with much of it ending up in the waterways or the groundwater. So back in the 40s, we decided to take the bomb factories and make fertilizer factories. That fertilizer factory, uh, that fertilizer that we put on the soil temporarily increases the output, but half of that fertilizer goes into our waterways. Our waterways don't need that fertilizer. Plus, all the, these things I'm talking about are all expensive inputs for farmers. Fertilizer is an expensive input for farmers. Insecticides are expensive inputs for farmers. Genetically modified seeds are expensive inputs for farmers. We want to free farmers worldwide from all these expensive inputs, and we want the farmers instead to be able to grow crops through regenerative methods that honor and cultivate the biological activity within the soils. Item number four, much of the excess nit uh, nitrogen in the fertilizer. So these fertilizers, some of the excess goes into the waterways, some of the excess goes into the air, and the excess is emitted as nitrous oxide, one of the most damaging greenhouse gases. So all this talk about carbon, carbon dioxide is only one greenhouse gas. Another is methane and another is nitrous oxide. It doesn't do us any good to deal with carbon if we neglect to deal with other greenhouse gases. I mean, in theory it might, but you know, in the real world, this is gonna be a process. It's gonna take some time. In the real world, this is gonna be complicated. We need to uh, say no to false solutions and false solutions are typically ones that are focused on one problem while ignoring all the other problems and creating a whole lots of new problems. We cannot afford to ignore, we, can, we cannot afford to focus solely on carbon if we're still emitting a lot of nitrous oxide into the atmosphere. Item number five. One of the other problems with industrialized agriculture is the overuse of insecticides and herbicides, which is leaving the soil lifeless. Overuse of insecticides is killing off the bees and butterflies. How can we afford that? There's a, a, a dramatic decline in the, uh, in, in the insects of the world. How can we afford to do that? You know, we can't, it doesn't matter if we reduce carbon if we're making war on life itself. It doesn't matter if we try to address climate change if we're making war on 
the biosphere. So all these fo solutions that are narrowly focused on carbon are not going to do anybody any good if we're neglecting things that are at least as important as carbon. It's like, you know, your body has several systems that have to be working in order for you to live. If you, you know, do everything you need to do for your skin, but neglect your, uh, you know, your circulatory system or your nervous system, then you can't live like that. And that's what it is. Climate, carbon and climate are, you know, represent one set of systems. We need to be uh, equally attentive to the system that is life itself. And mainly Biden's climate plan is, you know, it's about decarbonization. It's about things that are profitable for companies without a due attention to life itself. It says little or nothing about the biosphere. It says little or nothing about forests. It says a thing or two about agriculture, but not nearly enough. And what it does say is problematic like using digesters to generate methane. Okay, let's put another gadget into the mix. And we're going to put another gadget into the mix and somebody's going to make a profit from that gadget, all the while ignoring all these other problems with insecticides and herbicides and fertilizers. Item number six, industrial agriculture such as it is, is uh, involves broadcast spraying of herbicides on herbicide tolerant genetically modified crops and this is undermining the diversity of surrounding ecosystems and breeding superweeds resistant to treatment. In other words, we've got genetically modified corn and genetically modified soybeans, some of which don't even grow food, go, don't, don't grow food for people. So corn sometimes is used for ethanol, it's sometimes used for uh, high-fructose corn syrup, which arguably is not food. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, Vandana calls it anti-food. It's, it has calories, but they are empty calories to say the least, and they're laced with glyphosate because, you know, you make these genetically modified corn that's glyphosate resistant, it's Roundup ready, it's glyphosate resistant, so you spray the weeds and it doesn't hurt the corn, it just kills the weeds, but the weeds happen to be wildflowers and you end up with some of that glyphosate in your, the Coke that you're drinking or whatever else you're drinking or eating that involves high fructose corn syrup. Meanwhile, the fact that you're able to kill the weeds, it means you're killing the wildflowers, you're killing the milkweed, you're killing the goldenrod, you're killing the, uh, the weeds that should have a place in the countryside because our bees, butterflies, and birds depend on them. And when we kill bees, butterflies, and birds, we're largely contributing to the sixth great extinction. We're largely contributing to the massive die-off of species. And the Biden climate plan doesn't address any of that as far as I can tell. The Biden climate plan is heavily weighted toward things that make a profit for Wall Street and not things that actually solve the actual environmental and ecological problems that we have. Item number seven in the list of things that we're going through, eating uh, a passage from eating tomorrow, agribusiness, family farmers, and the battle for the future of food.
Item number seven in that list says nearly 70% of the fresh water that humans use is for irrigation. In other words, not drinking water, not bathing, but irrigation. 70% of the fresh water humans use is for irrigation. With intensive meat and commodity crop production, draining aquifers at unsustainable rates. In other words, we've got massive fields of corn, massive fields of soybean, massive fields of wheat. Uh, a lot of this corn goes to feed animals, and I'm not opposed to feeding animals, but we can, you know, cattle can live almost exclusively on grass. In fact, you know, we feed cattle corn. Cattle aren't made, made to eat corn. They didn't evolve eating corn. So you have all this, you know, the fresh water on the planet is like one or two percent of the water on the planet is fresh water. We need fresh water. And at some point we may have desalinization, but it won't do us any good to have desalinization if we ruin our ecosystems in the process. So that's about all the time we have. If you have any questions, comments, or observations, please email me at info at Thank you for joining me. Have a great day.